hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and this week we talk to Damien Scatini. Now he's a lawyer who's about to, get this, sue the Australian Stock Exchange, the ASX, for letting its stock market crash in November, costing investors millions of dollars or maybe billions. And if you're a person who lost, you might want to sign up with um, Damien to be a part of the action in suing the ASX. Then we catch up with Shark Tank entrepreneur Naomi Simpson on how the red balloon business of hers both survived and thrived in the coronavirus environment. And finally, we meet the CEO of Hazer Group, Jeff Ward, which is a hydrogen-making operation. And Jeff tells us how hydrogen will um, basically be huge for business and will effectively help save the planet. This little interview of mine could change the minds of a lot of renewable energy doubters out there. I gotta say, it made me start thinking about the possibilities of hydrogen and what it might do to reduce our exposure to petrol, oil, coal, and all that sort of stuff. That's the show, let's kick off now and meet Damien Scatini. Thanks for coming on the program, Damien. Thanks for having me. So why are you picking on the poor old ASX, Damien? The poor old ASX? Well, I mean, this is um, really a highfalutin negligence case. Mm. They, It's uh, nothing different to that. It's uh, you know, their obligation to have correct systems that can handle the uh, flow of uh, commerce on the ASX. Mm. Uh, they've got a virtual monopoly. You know, there's rules and regulations about what they're supposed to have and the fail-safe, and it collapsed. Mm. So tell us, for people who forgot, what mm. day was it? Yes. Uh, I, I remember it started for a while because uh, yeah, we, we're actively interested in what goes on in the course. stock market here at Switzer, yeah. Yeah, so 16 November. Mm. So they tested a, the uh, new software earlier, apparently, um, and then on 16 November, you know, 20 past 10, it crashed mm. and no one could complete their trades. It was in the middle of a, um, as you will recall better than me, a, a, you know, a huge upswing yeah. in the market yep. and they closed down for the whole day. So anyone who traded couldn't complete their trades and, you know, um, many, many people have lost a lot of money as a consequence. Mm. Did, did you, I, I, I presume, given the fact you've taken up the card jewels to... Um, you know, seek compensation mm-hmm. for for people. Was there a, a big number of both losers who wanted to, you know, had placed trades, which didn't happen, mm-hmm. and those who wanted to, say, get out and couldn't get out and as a consequence lost out? Yeah, well, no one could do anything, yeah. Mm. So it's, it's the, the action, you know, if it's filed, which mm. it looks like it will be because it looks like a strong case, mm. will be for people who lost money as a consequence. Mm. And, you know, if you couldn't complete your trade one way or the other, mm. then it seems like you fit the criteria. What kind of numbers do you think you're going to have of people who will, you know, support the action? Well, so we have a, in Australia, we have a, a what's called an opt-out class actions regime. Mm. So we file on behalf of a representative plaintiff whose circumstances broadly represent everyone. And here that's pretty plain who that would be. Yeah, And then... They don't need the permission of everyone. They file it and then there's an opportunity later on for people who are in the group to opt out if they so choose. Yeah. So that, that's how the legislation is designed. Yeah. And can someone 
benefit who doesn't support the actual action? Or do you have to be a, oh, a signatory yeah. to the action? No, you don't have to be a signatory. So yeah. th- there's plenty of people who sit on the uh, sidelines not supporting <laughs> it saying, yeah. oh, those lawyers, they're awful. But they, they, they tend to bank the check. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they, they, so ultimately, if a judge says yes, the ASX um, was uh, um, guilty, In, negligent. negligent. Yeah. So, so negligent. you'd have to prove yeah. a duty. That's pretty right. clear. Yeah, you've, uh, you've yeah. got no choice mm-hmm. but to use the ASX. So mm-hmm. a, you know, and they've got responsibilities to have safe systems, yeah. and there's all ASIC has all regulations about that. Right. And then you've got to have a breach of that duty. Mm. I think we've got that, mm. and then you've got to have uh, it caused a loss, and I think we've got that as well. Now, okay. we don't have a handle on exactly how much the loss is yet because we haven't analysed that. That's yeah. for the economists. And so those who can sign up late mm. to this, they then would have to be able to prove that there was effectively a loss. People will have to demonstrate it, yeah. You, yeah. you can't just um, be in a vacuum. We, don't, yeah. we won't know who to to uh, you know contact to mm. seek the details unless unless that happens yeah and so so therefore uh, a, a case just try and think of an example mm. you know uh, I, I want to buy a, tha- uh, a thousand CBA shares at 70 and the next day they go up to 80 when the when the uh, the stock exchange is back on. I missed the chance of making ten dollars a day, therefore ten thousand yeah. dollars. I would then put in for a ten thousand dollars conversation. Correct. Yeah, but you'll you'll have to have you'll be able to Solid demonstrate that because that. otherwise yeah. everyone will you know you, you could have a circumstance hmm. where people say oh, I would have uh, you know put a million dollars that no. I never had onto something. So yeah. it's not. But but like, your Comsec trading account or your NAB trade would actually register yeah. that you you've put in for it. That's, that's right. Maybe yeah. your starting point. Wouldn't yeah, you? and that's right. And the, you know, there's uh, as you know, there's. Uh, Many many trades each day. Mm. I think there's one and a half million trades a day, something like that, mm. on the ASX. Yeah. And there's over a billion dollars is traded now. Not everyone will fit the criteria, but it's you know they shouldn't have stuffed it up. Has this been done before? Not not this sort of case. No, you know, but there, there's all sorts of every field of human endeavour mm. has the opportunity to. I can't remember the ASX being brought to book. Um, no, uh, have they had technical glitches of this magnitude? They have. Before? Yeah, they've mm. had. They've had. A few, mm. and they had one in 2016, most relevantly, yeah. and a- they were they were. It was suggested to them by the regulator, "Here's mm. what you need to do to fix this," mm. and there's an open question about whether they actually did that. Oh. So, um, has the ASX responded to this so far? Uh, I, th- I think it, they've been contacted by the media, and they've said, um, "You know, it's uh, nothing to see here. Mm. We deny all responsibility." The usual thing. I mean, mm. we the, the usual thing from. Uh, corporations as will defend this vigorously, mm. so they uh, that must be out of the uh, you know the uh, mm. mandatory phrase book. But I, I expect them to defend it. Yeah. Do you, do you think they have insurance for this kind of thing? It would I would expect. So. I would expect so. Yeah. yeah. Prudent uh, operators have insurance. That's why you have insurance. Yeah. You know, and there's there's no suggestion by us that someone is guilty of a crime no. or is morally just bad risk management. Yeah, just yeah, that's right. That's right. You've got to have your, your systems in place. It's, it's so important, particularly if you're virtually a monopoly. Have you have you looked in to see um, who was the software company because ultimately ASX might, might turn around and say, well, it's their mistake, not ours, and try yeah, and shift and that, the blame. That's, a, that's a, the common enough thing. So yeah. NASDAQ was a... Um, Okay, so right. they've got deep pockets as well. I believe so, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah we're in trouble if they don't. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm sure. Okay, so so tell us what are the next steps going to be. 
and uh, and you're confident that, that this will see a, a oh, it, Yeah, so we are um, contacted about potential class actions all the time, mm. and it's very, very few of them that we take to uh, even this stage, mm. let alone filing. This one looks like a good one. Yeah. You know, it, look, it looks like a meritorious one, So, and it looks like people have um, lost money who shouldn't have lost money if, mm. if you know, the... The ASX had done the right thing. Have you guys, um, you know, run these sort of cases before? Is this, is this a, a, a patch that you're comfortable with? Oh, look, so our firm is—it's the largest litigation firm in the world. Oh, so yeah, simple as that. Yeah, there you go. Well, so we're, we're, we, this is what we do for four names so like that, and you're the yeah. largest in the world. So we've got, uh, you know, just in our Sydney office, mm. we have thirteen class actions mm. on the go at the moment. And that's all I've done for the last uh, many years is uh, representative proceedings. So, mm. yeah, we, we do lots of these cases, mm. um, but we, we're very careful about the ones we take. Where does the, uh, the, the law firm come from initially? So it's, it's a uh, – we're based in Los Angeles mm. and people listening to home, The home of prosecution. Well, that's, that's, where, that's, where, we, uh, that's where we started. Yeah. And is it a list? It's not a list of – It's not a list. Oh, God, no. No, no, others have, We uh, do have listed. Uh, I know, I know, <laughs> yeah. we do. It's uh, all worked out uh, so terribly well. Yeah. Um, no, so we're we're started in the US, mm. and we're in you know every continent now except Antarctica. So okay. we're, you know, we started in Australia about six years ago. Yeah, and or seven years, seven years this year. Um, I've been there five years, mm. and this is what we do. So we've got nine hundred lawyers worldwide. And we represent both sides of the uh, V, as we call it. So we represent plaintiffs and defendants. Mm. And I'm for my uh, for my sins or whatever. I'm the plaintiffs guy in the uh, Sydney office. Right. Have you um, have you been a participant in the stock market vigorously in your lifetime, or you've been like a, a, oh, a sideline yeah. spectator? Badly. I've, I've uh, you know I've, I'm not a stock picker. I leave that to uh, others. For, you know, horse racing and uh, stocks don't take it too far. <laughs> well, that's good. So, look, we, we're going to watch Damien with uh, great interest. When do you think this will kick off? Well, uh, the, the courts close on the 18th of December yeah. for the summer hiatus. Hmm. So I, we're fast running out of year. Hmm. So we'll investigate it thoroughly and uh, assuming it's a case hmm. that, we, uh, that we think it is, it'll be in the new year. The courts come back in... Uh, February. Yeah. So, you know, there's no rush. No one's going anywhere. And so we'll we'll prepare it properly. And, uh, yeah. you know, we always aim to resolve it at an early stage. And do you want people, as many people as possible, who think they have a genuine case to contact you guys? Yeah, well, they should keep the records. That'd be the first thing. So mm. watch this space. We'll, we'll have to put, we don't, we can't do anything yeah. uh, in secret or in a closet or anything. So yeah. we'll have to notify people and there'll be an opportunity to provide their details. Mm. So there, there will be an announcement. But should people things. register the, their interest in, in being um, a party to this action? Yeah, sure. Yeah. They, they can send us, uh, you know, an, an email at, mm. uh, you know, I'm Damien Scatini at quinnemanual.com. Yeah. So they can uh, email me to register their interest. But we'll have a, a formal process in due yeah. course and yeah. and then it will uh, be taken uh, by the court. So mm. there's an orderly process so no one is left in the dark about their rights. Should be a very interesting um, drama case to see yeah. it, uh, un- unfold.
Thanks Indeed. for joining us on the program. Thank you very much for having me. Merry Christmas. Yeah, same to you. Thank you. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated, and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan Mm. that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs) Joining me now is one of Australia's most well-known entrepreneurs. It's Naomi Simpson from the Big Red Group. Naomi, thanks for joining us. Great to see you. Yeah, same here. And you know, when you think about it, the last time we spoke, I'm sure we were in the depth of the coronavirus scare uh, experience. Um, it was, wasn't it? How did your business experience the first hit of the coronavirus and where is it now? Yeah, so, you know, what a roller coaster this year has been. Um, and uh, I'm very, very happy to say that right now, Australians just want to get out and do experiences as fast as they possibly can. So we've got exactly the opposite kind of that we had earlier in the year. For those first uh, six weeks when all of us, none of us knew what was happening. Uh, and I remember saying to you, you know, the business dropped dramatically. But what we found is the Red Balloon brand, um, because of the trust in the brand, it's an Australian homegrown brand, but it's also in gifting. And that means that people are giving a voucher to an activity that they can redeem sometime in five years. And that means that people needed something to look forward to. So surprisingly, even before we came out of stage one lockdown, we saw a really, a really nice kind of uptick but we didn't know if it was going to be v-shaped and as it was it's it's continued to rise and when we saw victoria go into stage two lockdown you know we were nervous and concerned about that as well but as it happens the rest of australia um more than made up for it because everyone else in the country was busy getting out as much as they could. But not only that, um, we in the meantime had been able to separate our marketing to be far more local, regional and state-based. Mm. So, you know, yeah. it, it, you know, we we did things uh, and got infrastructure programs, software, um, 
done in the shortest amount of time. Isn't it amazing that all of us in business have discovered things that we would never have got to as quickly as we have if it wasn't for the the stimulus and the scare factor of the coronavirus? I also think that one of the things that we'd been meaning to do for ages was move to Microsoft Office and Teams and so forth. Well, we had no choice and we managed to execute that kind of within a day or two, which had been something that had been on the agenda for a while. Mm. Um, so, you know, necessity does breed innovation, as, as you say. But the other thing is that because we weren't kind of in this noisy open space, people were able to do deep thinking and really deep work and be able to block out uh, time as well as we're creating new ways of collaborating. So I think that's been interesting too because people in some ways have been more productive because they've had to be more self-reliant. Mm. So your workers, on your um, summation, have actually been more productive working from home. Well, I just see the momentum that the team is delivering, uh, and not in every area, but I'm just, I am super impressed and um, also we're in growth and we've realised that 30% of our team will never have been to a BRG office. You know, they never will have been to one of our offices. Mm. And we, those people we are now recruiting from throughout Australia rather than being Sydney-centric, which is only better for an Australian New Zealand business. And we've got team members in New Zealand now as well. So um, I think it's... It's removed our blinkers to being, you know, so Sydney-centric. Yeah, well, I know when I was interviewing John Cusick, the uh, MD of Webjet, and this was before borders started to open, and he, and he said that the opening up of borders would be very good for his bottom line. But he actually said, we actually are a, a business that has been forced to review all of our costs. So when we get back into profitability, we'll go faster because we've – looked at costs we would never looked at before. Did you find yourself doing the same thing? Yes, we were in the fortunate position that we were kind of on a monthly uh, to month rent because we have been doing a number of acquisitions and we didn't quite know how large we'd be. And that gave us the flexibility of being able to get rent mm. out of that OPEX. And that's a, that's a lot of money uh, of which we put into an experience as a work program, which means that because we do want our people to connect. And so, you know, we were using our own experiences and going out and doing chocolate walking tours and paint and sip and abseiling and we're putting all these different people together so that when they were together, they were, you know, having obviously these shared experiences. And then even within the COVID restrictions, we had a regatta on Sydney Harbour and got people together. And so we kind of were using... The money that we'd saved, not just in infrastructure and um, marketing, but also for our people to give them a completely different experience mm -hmm. of work. Your leadership, uh, my, my producers actually come with a very interesting way of looking at this, um, peacetime to wartime. Uh, mm. Did your leadership change? And I, and I know you, you're a bit of a show-off and you like being hanging around people. You, you know, with Pete, and I, I guess I know you because I'm a bit like you and myself, but not having people face-to-face, -face, did it mean that you had to actually plan different things to get them excited, to get the feedback, to get the reaction and stuff like that? 
Yeah, and it wasn't so much me. David Anderson's my business partner. He's the group CEO. And I participate in our leadership team. And what we did also find was each of us in the leadership team was accountable for something, like one thing that we were accountable for. I was accountable for our B2B team, our Red Balloon for Business team. And so, therefore, it was my job within them to have the rhythm and leadership. But we did have a leadership framework. Um, and I've been sharing this leadership framework and also our experience of work white paper with anybody who wants to read it because, you know, I think the hardest question for many leaders right now is, well, to office or not to office. Now that people are like working from home but we're missing things like collaboration, development programs and so forth. And so we came up with this six-point um, experience of work white paper. You know, we've been talking about the future of work. Well, the future of work happened. And so it's now, well, how are people experiencing work? And I and I like to say, you know, um, work used to be somewhere where we went. Now it's something that we do. And so it, we've proven that work can happen anywhere, but we also need to be really intentional in our leadership style so that we don't lose some of the wonderful things about the camaraderie, the culture, and what happens by osmosis, by the water cooler, as they say. Mm. How we connect people, the connection and the community that we create is going to be really important. And what we found in the research was that older demographics are really happy to not commute and not go into the office, but actually younger ones are really missing each other. Yeah. Uh, and th- that's also because maybe their home life was not set up to sit around the dining room table with their flatmates all on calls and trying mm. to work in spaces yeah. that were not designed for work. You're making me remember um, the development, uh, which is probably in the last 10 or 15 years, and it was John McGrath who pointed it out to me, the real estate agent, uh, that, hey, they're making places without kitchens nowadays. And, no. and I think when you're working from home, okay, it's all right when you're working in a workplace and have takeaway food all the time, but there might be just times when you're sitting at home, you're working from home, it'd be nice to be able to make yourself something. Maybe I'm still old-fashioned. Old they, they kept doing Uber and Deliveroo's, but I reckon having a, a place where you can do stuff like that would make working from home a lot better. I think a lot of us cook more this year than we've cooked in years. And um, the the kitchen in my home is the hearth. It's where everybody gathers and they kind of sit around the bench and we all, you know, kind of pitch in. No, I, I, I remember hearing that and I suspect maybe that's the case for really city dwellers mm. but not so much suburban dwellers, you know. Mm. Uh, I, I wear our hearth. Our kitchen's very much the centre of our family life. You mentioned you, you run the B2B um, division of the business is that where you know a business might want to take a group of their employees out to do some sort of experience like jumping out of airplanes and stuff like that or is mostly it- mostly businesses don't choose that one they, <laughs> yeah. you know. but remember when you first started they did didn't they it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah, too yeah. scary now but no no they just don't, exactly they you know we don't get past no um really we've got a um We've got a fabulous program for our business clients. So these are Red Balloon vouchers and people use them for all sorts of things from length of service, milestones, 
a, a lot of Christmas giving now. Yeah. And and the reason being is people have saved, like businesses have saved a lot of money on stationery, uh, office supplies, which we were talking before. Biscuits. Uh, no, biscuits <laughs> yes. and all of those things. Yeah. No entertainment, no travel. And as such, uh, and there's no Christmas parties. So businesses aren't holding Christmas parties this year. It's just too hard and it's all too late and you can't get a venue. Mm. So um, what they're doing is handing out red balloon vouchers. And we've mm. got lots and lots of clients are doing that because also they're surprising and delighting their people. So one of our clients, MetLife, for instance, all of their customer care people are still working at home, still working remotely, and they may into the future but they want to surprise and delight them for doing an excellent job. So then a Red Balloon voucher arrives and, and absolutely makes a day. And they said they've never, ever had a program that has created so many conversations and so much love uh, in the business. So so that's that's how people are using them. So, I, yeah, I'm, I was really happy to come and lead our Red Balloon for Business team because it gave me an excuse to speak to customers. Mm, yeah. And that's what founders, entrepreneurs, leaders should be doing is talking to their customers and listening to what was going on in their businesses. Yeah. Um, what do you think next year is going to look like? I'm really Oh, I'm really excited. Like we are able to track consumer sentiment in a number of different ways um, of external data that, that we get. And as soon as Victoria came out of lockdown, our businesses are now you know, they're anywhere from between 25 to 40% year on year uplift, and we only see it going up. So um, what is wonderful for us is that gives us a chance to invest in people, uh, in new people, in growing our people, in infrastructure, and that is supporting the 2,000 or more now small businesses. And we are signing up small business suppliers. Uh, we literally now have people out in the regions, in cars, talking to people, and they're so grateful for every customer that we send them. And so I'm very optimistic because... You know, the thing about a marketplace is we know it's open, it's quality assured, and uh, you can book in. It's, there's no point right now going out to the Hunter Valley or out to the Blue Mountains or down to the Margaret River, wherever you are, if you haven't got a booking. It's mm. just not going to happen. So using a, a booking platform really, really makes sense. And what is the, uh, the most popular experience that you're booking people into and what is the newest and most interesting one well i think there's been a real up uplift in artisan kind of things yeah. and crafts as people begin to pursue hobbies that they might never yeah. have or they say oh so one of the ones that we've got in sydney is gold leafing gold leafing so you, you pick up a leaf <laughs> in centennial park and whack some gold on it no, it, gold leafing is where you cover things with gold. Right. Um, Shiver, it's a whole, well, I said it's a that. whole thing. I said that. If you get a leaf in Centennial <laughs> Park and you put some, but you're saying anything that puts yeah. gold on. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Baby's boots, you know, dear knew? little so baby boots, put them in gold. Exactly. So we're it's pretty expensive, all... isn't it? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not for the, the course. Mm. So, but, you know, so we've got these artisan ones. They're really popular. 
Um, and the other thing is anything that's outdoors. Uh, so glamping, glamping throughout the whole of the country, mm. people just want to go. They do want to go out into the Australian bush, but we want to make it easy for them. Mm. The other one that I think is fascinating is flying. The whole flying category is absolutely flying. Mm. So hot air ballooning and um, helicopter flights and so forth. And I think maybe that's because nobody's going to the airport. To, right. You know, <laughs> so yeah. flying's really popular. Okay, that's all the stuff that you're doing and, and you're observing. Mm. There, there could be people listening to this saying, well, you know, she's pretty successful. Um, how did she become successful? Come on, in a nutshell. What, what <laughs> changed you from being a normal Naomi Simpson? Well, I've never known you were in your normal. You've always been abnormal in my mm. eyes. But you must have been, Yeah, you, you did work for IBM, didn't you, as a marketing person? I worked for person? IBM and Apple. I worked for You're a marketing person. Yeah. And then you were normal. What, what stopped you? What changed you from being normal to abnormal and then yeah. successful? Uh, one of the things is that um, I am very action-oriented. So I have always had this motto, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. So what that means is many people are ideas. I got this idea, I got this idea. Well, I give it a crack. So I, I, And not only that, I stick with it. So a lot of people will start something and, you know, we didn't have a customer for two months and four days. Everybody knows that story. But, you know, I stuck with it and I kept trying new things and I kept asking people and I, I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. So I'm very I'm pushy, you know, I'm pushy. Yeah, very pushy. And you wear a red dress all the time <laughs> to make people remember your business, which is a really good idea. Yeah. Joining EO and stuff like that, was that good for you, hanging out with other people who wanted to do exactly the same as you? And it wasn't so much the hanging out. It was a consistent approach to also education. So, you know, you, you've got to keep learning and learning from other people. And the thing about entrepreneurs, organisation, YPO, tech, any of these, they um, you're learning from others. And I think it's also why podcasts, like your podcast is so popular because you get to learn from other people's experience. And, you know, we don't all have time to read books. I, I needed to learn a, a lot of things very quickly and I still need to stay up to date. So um, I've, I, I think it's the learning and be really investing in that learning. And the good thing about those programs is they have a learning schedule. So every month you're going to something because it's part of your fees. So you yeah. show up and you, and you never know what you're going to learn. It's funny, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk here. I'm going to bet that you've read a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Have you read that? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I knew you would have. I, I've read a few of his yeah. books, actually. Yeah, no. but the, Lincoln, but, yeah. Yeah, but when you read that thing about 10,000 hours to get good at something, that's what you've done. And yeah. other people like you, you weren't that great at the beginning, but the more and more you did business at higher and better and more professional levels, you just got better, didn't you? You did, and you you learn to negotiate, and you learn to pick yourself up when everything doesn't go your way, um, and you learn to adjust your language and your approach. And the I think the most important thing that many leaders is is we just don't know anything or everything, and how we just don't be right the whole time. And another great book to that was called The Multipliers mm. by. Um, Liz Wyman. Yeah, from it's Oracle. It's such a good book. Yeah. yeah, it's such a good book because when you realise 
your way is not the only way. It's not my way or the highway. And when you realise the best way is to amplify your people by asking really powerful questions, mm. I think that staying curious is the trick. Staying curious. Yeah. When I interviewed Liz Wiseman, um, I, it wasn't long after I'd been emceeing John Maxwell who wrote the book 21 Irre Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And one of his laws is, is that leaders have to be multipliers. Mm. And, uh, and and she she had never come across him, and he mm. I don't think he knew her. But, but but hanging out with leadership people, you learn that that the yeah. really good leaders can get other people to become leaders as well, and it's a multiplication process. And you're a multiplier, and it's great talking to you, Naomi. Thanks for joining us. So my pleasure, and everybody is welcome to a copy of the Experience of Work white paper. And if you want to download the white paper that Naomi was talking about, just click on the link in the show notes. Now it's ad time and you know one of the funniest things I've discovered over the last few months particularly since I've been working on uh, Ben Fordham's 2GB breakfast and then Alan Jones's program before that is that just occasionally I've mentioned the fact that we actually have a financial planning business and a hell of a lot of people have contacted us not knowing that you know, the Switzer organization actually has a financial planning business. So if you think you need help with your investing and growing your wealth, yeah, give us a call. You can go to switzer.com.au or you can uh, look at the contact details there and give us a, a, a call. And uh, I think we're 1-300-SWITZER as well for you modern people out there who can actually work out uh, the touchpad on a telephone system. Um, and if you need help, and by the way, I've recently wrote a story where I actually point out that Goldman Sachs thinks that the US stock market in 2021 is going to rise by 16%. So maybe if you need help to get on a bit of that 16%, don't be afraid. Just contact us at switzer.com.au or 1300Switzer. I'm talking to Jeff Ward, who is CEO and MD of Hazer Group, at a time when we're looking at the the increased importance of hydrogen, uh, particularly with the uh, the Prime Minister going to Japan um, around that particular subject. It's good to talk to a, a, a CEO and MD of a company in this space, which is also a listed company. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Peter, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Okay, now I've got to ask this question because lots of people often ask me, uh, what's the difference between a CEO and an MD? Well, um, I, I'd probably say you should ask a corporate lawyer or a governance expert, but I guess um, I was appointed as Chief Executive Officer of Hazer, and obviously you're there to run the management team and, and run the company, but mm. not all CEOs are members of the board. Yep. I guess on... Uh, on a couple of months after becoming CEO, I was also invited to join the board and took the title as managing director because you're obviously an executive director. Yeah. So I'm not sure I could give you a good example um, or a good answer, but I guess you know, a CEO isn't always a member of the board, but in, in this case, I'm both the managing director and CEO. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd say, mate. And uh, it better to come from a person who actually is a CEO and an MD. I'm just purely a founder and chairman. Other people have kick me out of the CEO's role because they reckon they're better than me. 
and they probably are. All right, mate, let's kick off with the first question I've got here. Hydrogen has been at the forefront of trade recently, as I mentioned earlier, following Scott Morrison's visit to Japan. And the role of hydrogen in Japan's plans to be carbon neutral by 2050. For listeners who might not be too familiar with the hydrogen sector, can you put this into context? And where are we at in terms of hydrogen as an energy source in Australia and abroad? Okay, so it's, it's a great broad starting question. So hydrogen has a unique role to play, you know, in the future energy system. Um, and the way I've often described it to investors is that hydrogen um, enables, you know, renewables 2.0, that if the first wave of renewables, renewables 1.0, to use a dot-com speak, was wind and solar and taking advantage of the plunging cost of wind and solar to bring cheap electricity, but variable electricity to networks, then hydrogen actually lets you go one step further. So hydrogen has this unique function where it's a way of storing, transporting and using renewable energy in ways that you want to use it when you want to use it. So hydrogen can do things that wind and solar can't. So to give you a couple of examples, you know, hydrogen can act as a way of storing and transporting energy. So you can take wind and solar energy from the Pilbara, turn it into hydrogen, take that hydrogen to Japan and turn it back into electricity without releasing any carbon. But you could also take wind and solar from South Australia to New South Wales or from spring you know, to summer or autumn to winter. Uh, so it's a way of shifting around energy for, for when you need it. But hydrogen can also do certain things that, um, that electricity can't. So it can help you decarbonise industries like steel, like petrochemicals, like fertiliser and ammonia production. So hydrogen plays this unique role where both it's a product and a molecule in its own right, which can then be a low carbon way of, of making all of those industrial products we use. It's a way of storing and transporting energy. So it plays the role of an energy store. So allowing, allowing more variable energy into networks. And it's also a way of providing energy directly you know, through its use, either as a turbine where you can combust it with no CO2 or through a fuel cell where you can generate electricity electrochemically without CO2. So it has this incredibly sort of complex and sophisticated role. And it actually answers the question of how do you decarbonize 80, 90 and 100%, not just the easier or the easier 20, 30 and 40% we've achieved to date. So that's why there's such a push around this 30 year transition to a hydrogen economy. And it's as significant as, a, as an economy going from oil burning to electricity or from you know, coal and gas fired to 100% renewables. Mm. So one question I'm sure lots of people would have after that very interesting answer is, how do you turn solar energy into hydrogen? Okay, so there's broadly two ways of making hydrogen. You can make hydrogen starting off uh, with fossil fuels, either uh, syngas from coal, which was the old way, the 18th century way, or starting off with natural gas and splitting that natural gas molecules, which are made up of carbons and hydrogens into hydrogen and CO2. So that's where the world's coming from. Yep. Where the world's moving towards is making hydrogen from water, which is obviously hydrogen and oxygen molecules. And if you use electricity, um, and in this case, now the abundantly available low cost renewable electricity, you can split those water molecules to produce hydrogen and oxygen. So you have an energy um, storage, transport and creation process that doesn't actually liberate any carbon into the atmosphere. And so it's the long-term solution for how do you really take 
a high energy intensity economy like Australia's or Japan's or Korea's or Europe or North America and make it genuinely carbon free, not just for its electricity, but for its industrial heat, for its furnaces and for its heavy industry. So you do it by splitting water with renewable energy. So what you're saying then, Jeff, is that by using solar energy, you apply the effectively, I guess, heat to water and then you capture the hydrogen as a gas. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So that's the emerging you know, or the well-proven but emerging in scale technology of electrolysis. And you don't use heat, you use ele- electricity, mm. right? So you run an electrical current through an electrolyzer mm. and you're using various membranes, you know, anode and cathode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like when you're doing electroplating and stuff like that. Correct, yeah. yeah. And, and then, of course, there's emerging technologies like hazers. I better bring it back to why we're yeah, here. Is yeah. we're, we're a way of making hydrogen with low carbon emissions directly from uh, methane or natural gas. So that's a, you know, a simple hydrocarbon feed. Mm. So the, the world is gravitating towards clean ways of making hydrogen, you know, away from polluting ways of making hydrogen. And it's doing that because the hydrogen itself allows it to make this transition to a zero emissions economy while still remain, you know, maintaining the economic competitiveness, the energy competitiveness, um, and providing all of the sort of you know, energy services of a modern economy. Yeah. So I, I presume at this point in time, because we're not going mad with the usage of hydrogen, that the cost equation at this point in time doesn't make it better than what we're currently using. And so that becomes what society has to deal with, the trade-off between... I think over time, I, I suspect that the cost of creating hydrogen will get cheaper and cheaper. And at one stage, we then can give the others the flick pass. And very much so. So we're entering a transition point. And I don't think we, as, a, as an economy or, a, or as a polity, should be scared about this. So when you think about it, when we introduced gas, it was more expensive than using oil. You know, when we introduced electricity, it was more expensive than lamps, but it gave a better and cleaner service. Mm. Um, and so... Hydrogen, um, I think, is very analogous to where we were with wind and solar in the early 2000s. You know, it's, a, it's a discussion we often have with investors is saying we're at the early stage um, of a transition. And so hydrogen is you know, approaching a cost parity and the arguments are whether it's over the next two years, five years or 10 years. But it's quite clear that the price of hydrogen will come down as, as new technologies like Hazer emerge and are perfected but also as well-known technologies like electrolysis um, expand in scale. Yeah, they will come down because of economies of scale uh, and because of experience curves, the same way that, you know, that wind, turbines or sol- uh, wind turbines or solar panels have come down or the same way that computers, televisions and cars came down. You know, they're driven by the, you know, the immutable economies of scale in manufacturing. Mm. And so hydrogen's reaching that point where it's um, approaching cost competitiveness now and with an upscaling in volume and with investment in infrastructure, um, we expect it to break through you know, in this decade. So why don't you explain to us what Hazer does? Because you said it's a different way of um, getting hydrogen. And I know I've, I've seen you present before and you've actually said that you, know, um, you actually get a byproduct of graphite as well. Maybe that's worthwhile explaining. 
Correct, yeah, and very happy to. So as I mentioned, in Hazer, we're a, uh, a low emissions hydrogen and graphite production technology. So we take a methane molecule, uh, which has the, the chemical symbol CH4, people might remember from their school or, or college days, um, and we split that using iron oxide, iron ore as a low cost process catalyst, and we get out two hydrogen molecules and a solid graphite particle. So we put you know, a hydrocarbon in and we get out two products without any associated CO2. Um, so we think it's a, a really you know, timely and useful uh, process invention. And it's timely because hydrogen is such in demand, you know, low emission hydrogen is demand. And while there's a lot of focus on places like Australia that can do low cost wind and solar uh, for hydrogen from electrolysis, Places like Northern Europe or Northern Asia don't have our renewable uh, endowment, don't have our renewable resources, so they need other ways of making low emission hydrogen. Um, we also think it's a terrific process because both hydrogen and graphite are in-demand commodities. And you know, I anticipate that over the 21st century, we'll make more and more products out of, you know, out of carbon rather than maybe out of you know, metals or other alternatives as the, um, the reuse and recycling of carbon becomes more and more of a global focus. Yeah. So is your business then the actual production of lots and lots and lots of cylinders of hydrogen or, or is it as well actually selling the process that other countries and companies can do? Um, well, it may well be both. So we're a technology development company and our yeah. prime focus is getting the Hazer commercial demonstration plant up and running and proving that our technology can run at the next scale. Yeah. Um, we have aspirations to be both a seller of hydrogen and graphite yeah. because I think it produces a good quality revenue and there's a lot of intricacies in the graphite market in particular that we think we can you know, really exploit our strong history of R&D and innovation around. Um, Long term or medium term, yeah, when the process is um, proven and, and, and bankable, yeah, we would like to be a licensor of our technology. And mm. uh, when asked by you know, large investors or at conferences about this, you know, I make it quite clear that the board's quite open to licensing the technology in some jurisdictions, to doing build own operate our own plants in, in others, and or maybe a hybrid mix where we joint venture with someone and maybe. Um, toll their gas through a plant that is co-owned and they take the hydrogen and we take the graphite and supply the catalyst. So we have quite a broad range of potential business opportunities in front of us. Okay. What kind of encouragement has your company received from government to expedite you know, the, the, the situation where you, you are producing exactly what the business model predicts it will, it will produce? So Hayes is a distinctly Australian story. Um, the technology was developed at the University of Western Australia. And in fact, the, um, the inventor of the technology still works with us as our chief technology officer. Um, and we now have a research partnership with the University of Sydney. Um, and so I think we're a great example of Aussie innovation. Um, support from government has come uh, in a number of ways. Um, key to the support that we've got from them is a, a grant from ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, you know, a, a body that's done so much to support the development of Australian technology in this area. So we have a $9.4 million grant for, to support this first build-up uh, of our technology um, in Western Australia. Um, I guess other key supports are we're working with the Western Australian Government through their Renewable Hydrogen Fund to assess the feasibility of establishing a refuelling hub you know, so to look at what it would take to establish a, um, 
the first uh, hydrogen transport hub in Western Australia. Mm. And another key mechanism, which I think sometimes doesn't always get the credit it deserves, is that we are part of the Innovative Manufacturing Cooperative Research Centres. So the CRC system, you know, which aims to bring together business, government and academia to promote um, Australian technology for economic benefit, mm. um, we do get support in co-funding through the CRC. And probably to give a plug to a last one that you know, sometimes uh, gets threatened to be rolled back, but you know, we've significantly used R&D tax incentives you know, mm. as we've taken our process from the desktop to the pilot now to the demonstration plant. They've been an important funding mechanism. So all of those things we've used together, um, you know, the support from the government has been really strong. Um, we would love to see you know, stronger support on things like electric vehicle incentives um, and more incentive to use the technology that Australia, I think, does a great job of incentivising development of early stage technologies and they often disappear off to the wider world and you see them start to really get their further development in international markets. So we're, we do a great job of early stage um, incentives and support, but sometimes we miss the, you know, the, um, the build out and roll out stage. Okay. Where are we in relation to hydrogen and the widespread use of it in the Australian economy? So in the Australian economy, um, we have a national hydrogen strategy. So a, a hydrogen roadmap was produced by CSIRO with support from Professor Alan Finkel in 2018. And then COAG, the Council of Australian Governments, requested the chief scientist, Alan Finkel, to produce a national hydrogen strategy, which he did and it was released in, in March this year. And I recommend that to interested listeners. It's a great um, explainer on hydrogen. Um, under that strategy, there's a focus on demonstration projects in the next you know, two to three years to start to demonstrate how supply chains and technologies work together and with an with a expectation that we'll see a growth you know, in commercial hydrogen markets after 2025. Um, globally, that's sort of consistent with where the rest of the world is going as we've seen um, national roadmaps in Germany, Japan, Korea, uh, the UK, We've seen the European Union put out a large hydrogen uh, incentive program. And now in 2020, particularly in response to the COVID pandemic, we've seen very large um, stimulus programs focused at green investment in hydrogen in Europe and in Asia. And, and that's starting to catalyse investments in uh, large scale demonstration projects, starter projects, uh, with an aim to having um, a much greater infrastructure investment this decade um, in hydrogen and its associated you know, technologies. You know, um, when you hear people critical of renewables, the standard criticism is, well, it'll never do baseload um, for the, the power system, the electric, electrical um, grid. Um, when is the combined muscle of wind, solar, hydrogen, and what else do, what do, we, do we need to, to stop people actually saying that? Because at the moment, there are question marks about baseload, and I'm sure you understand that. I agree that question's raised, but I think it's been asked and answered so many times. You know, we were told as an industry that you know, you'll never get past 5%, then 10%. You know, and now we're regularly doing 30 to 40% without much storage. You know, we've seen the big battery in South Australia, the Victorian one, the New South Wales one, have an incredible impact. So I think we're rapidly seeing that sort of fade away you know, as an issue. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of technical work to be done. There is. 
But between wind and solar, between the variability on demand, people forget that demand is very variable as well as supply. And so the grid does this amazing instantaneous job of matching those um, with some sort of you know, community and nodal storage, like we're seeing with the battery projects, with the rollout of more pumped hydro, like Snowy 2.0, um, and with you know, with increasing use of things like electric vehicles, and and then you know, with hydrogen being the big buffer storage as well, you know, the technologies are are all there. We just need to commit to the investment plans needed to bring them across. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I have complete confidence in the broader energy industry of being able to solve that, um, and hydrogen is a key part of it. How long do you think um, um, oil and petrol for cars? is going to be um, the main way that our cars are fueled? Well, that, that's a really interesting question. And I, I'd really quickly also you know, raise one other issue is that you know, the world broadly has two types of cars, left-hand drive and right-hand drive. Mm. And, and one thing that I think has slipped, down, slipped under the radar a little bit is that Boris Johnson announced just this month that the UK would outlaw the sale of new ICEs, internal combustion engines, from 2030. Now, that was 2040. It's come forward to 2030 in the last two years. Interestingly enough, last week, the new Japanese Prime Minister um, announced that Japan would match the UK and outlaw the um, uh, sale of new internal combustion engine vehicles from 2030. Now, I think that's really interesting because they're the two major right-hand drive markets that also then have a flow-over effect to supply Australia. So we see two very large markets now that have put a deadline of 2030 for the first new car, for the last new ICE cars. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a mobility expert, but uh, you know, what I would say is that that puts a, a really hard deadline quite soon. Um, and then you match that with you know, most of the EU has a 2035 or earlier deadline. And then you can see that the large car companies are starting to make commitments to have an electric version of every one of their models by 2025, for instance. I think it was Volkswagen who might have said that. And you can see that they're already transitioning their long-term capital investment plans to match those signals given by national governments. So uh, I, I think that it's actually closer than we may realise. Um, and I think this represents an enormous opportunity for Australia, that we're better positioned for you know, electrification of transport than almost any other country because of our wind and solar, um, because we're an infrastructure-rich company and we're good with technology. So you know, I see uh, EVs and the emerging manufacturing opportunities around EVs um, to be a great opportunity for Australia that we could jump onto. So in a perfect world, if your your business dream linked to your business model, produces what the Hazel Group wants to do, what will your hydrogen be used for? And what is it being used for right now? Well, we're currently at the demonstration stage, so yeah. we're not producing hydrogen for use at the moment. Right. Um, in the perfect world, our hydrogen would be used, you know, as part of a, um, you know, a, we have a global hydrogen network, you know, and we'd, we'd be maybe a local producer, you know, producing close to its end use point linking in with large-scale import-export chains from places like Australia and New Zealand to Japan and Korea, and we might be producing in Korea or Japan or Europe you know, to fit in with that. And our hydrogen would be used for um, trans heavy transport. So it would fuel trains, trucks, buses, 
ferries. Um, there's been terrific developments of all four of those vehicle classes with, with hydrogen because hydrogen allows them to go long ranges and heavy duties. Um, our hydrogen would also be used in the manufacture of, of, of fertilizers, explosives, glass, steel, cement, and petrochemicals. So we would have been a key part of building the next generation of heavy industry that used a cleaner version of hydrogen as a key building block in heavy industrial processes. Um, and we'd also be hydrogen would be integrated with the um, with the electricity grid. So as a way of acting as a buffer that could create hydrogen when there was excess supply and create electricity when there was excess demand. Um, that would also be a way of directly supplying electricity and heat uh, and district heat. So heating for buildings and communities in cold and northern climes. And hydrogen would just be integrated uh, with all of those industrial, transport, commercial and residential uses. Um, seamlessly the way that the electricity grid is now. Um, did, did, did you, yeah. There would be days of projects you know, um, on the outskirts of every major city or two or three of them taking advantages of gases made by the wastewater treatment plants, landfills um, and agricultural producers. So we'd be using renewable gas to create renewable hydrogen that fed locally into that network. Yeah. So those sewage treatment works would be uh, great places for methane and that's where you you would use that methane for hydrogen um, production as well as graphite as well. Um, did, did... That's what we're doing with our first project in Western Australia. So we're really proud to partner with the Water Corporation, the utility here in WA. Mm. Um, we're building the first hydrogen plant with the Hazer technology embedded with the uh, Water Corporation's Woodman Point wastewater treatment facility. Okay, and and did you intentionally leave out hydrogen um, powering aeroplanes um no i didn't i guess there's just a, a number unintentional, of things, unintentionally yeah. um i've seen some very interesting hydrogen uh, trials for, for planes there's been some yeah, some great innovation going on particularly in europe in that area yeah um, so it's not an area i actually know very much about to be yeah. honest yeah, yeah but it, it would be possible apparently it is yeah mm. but i'd certainly have to defer to the experts on that yeah okay so um so in terms of where Hazer is then as, as a company, um, how many years do you think it will be before Hazer is in that position where it's actually producing uh, energy for uh, economies, businesses and households? So yeah, we're at the start of a, of a relatively long journey and I often bring back to the analogue of solar where we knew that solar was possible and we knew it would get cheaper, but it started off at very small scale. Yeah. So we're currently building the first um, first sort of you know, larger, fully operational hazer process and we expect to be producing in 2021. Um, we would hope that sort of smaller commercial opportunities you know, were available you know, between now and 2025, you know, as Australia started to incentivise the conversion of bus fleets, waste fleets. Um, we've seen one of the first transport projects committed to was by Andrew Forrest's FMG in the Pilbara, where he's committed to bring in a 10 bus fleet and he's producing his own green hydrogen in the Pilbara to power that fleet. So we're starting to see those moves and we'd hope that they would accelerate over the next you know, three to five years. Um, we have a long way to go in terms of scaling our process up from, you know, from the pilot scale to the 100 tonne per annum scale at Demonstrator and then targeting plants between maybe 1,000 to 5,000 tonnes per annum in the first generation after that. Um, and we certainly see an interest from both you know, transport industry but also the heavy industry in looking to 
you know, use technologies like Hazer to reduce the carbon emissions associated with all the products that they produce. And we expect them to really accelerate over the next five years. Um, you mentioned green uh, hydrogen, and I believe there's grey, blue and green. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, it is a bit of a cluster of colours. I've heard of you know, grey, blue, green, purple, yellow and turquoise at various times. Okay. Um, so they broadly refer to their you know, their pollutingness, their carbon intensity. Mm. So grey hydrogen is mostly taken to mean hydrogen produced from natural gas by the process of steam methane reforming. And in that process, which is very well proven, very efficient, has been used in a lot you know, over the last 50 to 70 years you know, to power refineries, ammonia plants, et cetera, um, you produce a lot of CO2 as well as hydrogen. Yeah. Now, green hydrogen is you know, typically meant to be hydrogen from renewable sources. So it's the use of, uh, of wind or solar and an electrolyzer uh, to produce hydrogen from water. Blue hydrogen is you know, where you start off with a fossil fuel-based feedstock um, and you use steam methane reforming or, a, or another technique that processes that gas, but you capture the carbon emissions maybe through carbon capture and storage. Um, where Hazer fits in is that we could be a blue hydrogen if we use natural gas as our feedstock, because we obviously capture the carbon, but not for re-injection under the ground. We capture it in a much more usable, much more stable, much more long life for solid graphite. Um, we're also a green hydrogen technology if we use renewable biogas as our feedstock. You know, so the gas from wastewater treatment plants, landfills, or management of agricultural waste. Um, so blue, uh, so, you know, grey, blue and green typically refer to the transition from highly polluting to lower polluting forms of hydrogen. Mm, okay. Now, one last question. Um, whenever I hear alarmist um, environmentalists telling us that the world is, is doomed, I, I often look at so many areas where the ingenuity of mankind actually um, is able to save us before we get to the worst possible scenario. Um, and, and watching the, the rapid success of, you know, um, electric cars, hydrogen on the way, solar and whatever, where do you sit? Are you an alarmist that worries about the, the future of the planet or do you think that technology and companies like yours and others will actually ride to the rescue? Well, I could put a foot on both camps, Peter. Um, I definitely believe we have all the tools necessary to ride to the rescue, but we have to have the will to do it. So, um, you know, I suddenly don't feel like an old person, but I suddenly realise that I get described as an experienced executive now. Um, and time, that just shows that time flies past pretty quickly. It's now 30 years since the first Rio Earth Summit. Um, or more, you know, it's now 28 years since the first Kyoto Agreement, and we've acted a lot more slowly than perhaps we could. Um, the world that you could describe of you know, electrical vehicles, autonomous vehicles, um, clean, uh, clean inputs into heavy industrial processes, you know, a hydrogen grid that, is, that integrates with the electricity grid um, is incredibly exciting. It's, you know, it's Jetson-like, um, and it's all possible now, but we have to make the choice to do it to start that transition. And this is where I'd say that, you know, maybe the only good thing to come out of 2020 is that the, the silver lining of the, of the COVID pandemic and the, the global recession that's triggered is that the money necessary for governments to do this is now cheap and we desperately need stimulus to get economies working again. So I think we have, a, you know, 
an overused term, but a once in a lifetime opportunity to, to pour our effort into building um, the infrastructure that will both make our economy more productive in the future and less polluting in a way that puts everyone back to work and creates new skills and opportunities for Australia. Well said, Jeff. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you very much, Peter. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Once again, next week, we'll be seeking those people out there that will make me smarter and at the same time, you smarter. Thanks for joining us. Quentin time! Quentin time!